Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Rejoice Always. It's based upon the lectionary readings for December 12th, 2021, the third Sunday in Advent. In his brave and provocative poem, A Brief for the Defense, American poet Jack Gilbert insists that we cultivate joy in the face of the world's brokenness. Quote, we must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. End quote. The ancient writers of our lectionary text would wholeheartedly agree. The prophet Zephaniah exhorts his readers to sing aloud, rejoice, and exult with all their hearts because God is in their midst and rejoices over them with gladness. Isaiah claims with confidence that his people will draw water from the wells of salvation with joy. And Paul, writing to the Philippians, encourages them to rejoice in the Lord always. Indeed, the third Sunday of Advent is traditionally called Gaudete, or Rejoice Sunday in the liturgical calendar, because it's a day when we anticipate and celebrate delight, God's delight in us and our delight in God's salvation. In many churches, the penitential purple of the season is put aside in favor of a lighter, happier rose. Even as Christians around the world contemplate the apocalyptic significance of Jesus' once and future arrival, we pause to remember the heart of the gospel story, which is the stunning good news of God's saving love, good news grounded in joy. And yet, and yet, is it fair to say that these texts leave us feeling a bit uneasy, a bit anxious, a bit inauthentic? The truth is, rejoicing isn't easy especially in these days and times when the concept of joy is routinely manipulated by advertisers, religious leaders, and politicians who want nothing more than our money, our loyalties, and our votes. If the biblical, biblical instruction to rejoice no matter what strikes a sour note for some of us, given all that is happening in the world right now, I don't think we're alone. As the United States reels from yet another devastating school shooting, as nations contend with the frightening new COVID variant, as a planet continues to suffer the effects of climate change, as economic and political uncertainty hits our communities in increasingly consequential ways, it might feel like the worst kind of denialism to risk delight. Moreover, we Christians don't have the best track record when it comes to balancing a commitment to joy with a sensitive and holistic response to the world's pain. Too often we are known for exhibiting and demanding a Pollyanna-ish cheerfulness that refuses to look the complexities of real life in the face. We mistake lament for unfaithfulness. We sacrifice empathy for our own emotional comfort. We behave as if our faith and by extension our God is too fragile to handle life's dark side without a generous side-serving of grinning emojis. I wonder if our spiritual ancestors, Zephaniah, Isaiah, and Paul, might have something to teach us in this regard. These writers don't approach joy from a place of denial, obliviousness, or cheap frivolity. 
Zephaniah writes in the context of terrible spiritual and political corruption perpetrated by the very leaders who are supposed to care for the poor and the oppressed of Judah. His exhortation to joy sits right alongside his call to repentance and lament, and his confidence that God will sit in righteous judgment against those who exploit and oppress the weak. Isaiah likewise writes in the context of great suffering, as God's exiled people experience the humiliation of Babylonian domination. His call to joy is a forward-facing call, a call that fully recognizes the terror and pain of his present moment, and yet at the same time insists that something infinitely good, restorative, and salvific is on the horizon. God will not abandon God's beloved. Exile will not define reality forever. There will be a return, a homecoming, a cosmic celebration of renewal and restoration. To rejoice in a time of exile, then, is to insist that God is present, active, and faithful, even when circumstances suggest otherwise. Joy, in Isaiah's context, is a muscle to exercise, a practice to honor, a discipline to cultivate. It doesn't require denial at all. What it requires is the courage to trust in a God who promises deliverance. What about Paul? What helps me as I contemplate Paul's advice to rejoice always is remembering that he writes his letter from prison while awaiting trial and anticipating death. It also helps to remember that he is a man who is threatened, rejected, beaten, and shipwrecked, a man with a thorn in the flesh that God apparently does not heal in his lifetime, a man who, whose haunted past includes violence and murder. A man who knows firsthand the irony of a Pax Romana that leaves everyone in first century Palestine cringing under state-sponsored oppression. It's clear that Paul's famous lines in Philippians are not about feeling good so much as they are about cultivating the inner life of the soul. In Paul's view, peace and joy are not emotions we can conjure up within ourselves. They come from God, and the only way we can receive them is through consistent spiritual practice, prayer, supplication, gentleness, and contemplation. In other words, joy requires us to sidestep sentimentality and cynicism alike. It requires that we hold on to two realities at once, the reality of the world's brokenness in one hand and the reality of God's love in the other. Joy is what happens when we daily live into the belief that God can and will bridge the gap between the world we long for and the world we see before our eyes. It is a posture, an orientation, a practice, a willingness to sit gently but persistently in the tension of the not yet, trusting that God's peace will guard our hearts and minds in that in-between place for as long as it takes. In his poem, Hamlin Brook, Richard Wilbur describes the work of joy this way. Joy's trick is to supply dry lips with what can cool and slake leaving them dumbstruck also with an ache nothing can satisfy. I love this. I love the linking of joy with longing, joy with ache, joy with deep and unslaked desire. To rejoice by this definition is to lean hard into our longing for God's perfect shalom to break into the suffering world and make things right. It is unabashedly a longing for rescue. It is not a longing that excuses our passivity and apathy. Rather, it is a longing that compels us to participate in God's good work. It's a longing that drives us to anticipate and enact shalom in every way we possibly can, while also admitting our desperation, our helplessness, 
our urgent need for a Savior. In the biblical tradition, joy and judgment are inextricably connected. I know that we tend to equate judgment with condemnation, but in fact, to judge something is to see it clearly, to know it as it truly is. In the language of scripture, synonyms for judgment include discernment, acuity, sharpness, and perception. So, we can rejoice because we trust in a God who sees rightly, honestly, and deeply. We can rejoice because God, our judge, sees us as we truly are, in our beauty, brokenness, earnestness, and evil. God, our judge, loves us enough to deliver us from ourselves and loves the world enough to redeem it so that all can thrive. Isn't this cause for celebration? Because our judge is pure love, we don't have to fear the day of judgment that's coming. We can rejoice in the promise of creation made new and whole. We can risk delight. We can be honest in our longings. We can admit, even in the worst of times, that there will be music despite everything. For books this week, Dan reviews Jhumpa Lahiri's Whereabouts, a novel. Jhumpa Lahiri's five previous books have earned her a trove of awards, including a Pulitzer Prize for her debut collection of short stories, Interpreter of Maladies. Whereabouts is her third novel and her first one since 2013. She wrote the original novel in Italian and then translated it herself back into English. This isn't a novel in the conventional sense of the term, rather it is a series of 46 fragmentary vignettes in 150 pages to describe one year in the life of the protagonist. Nothing at all in the novel is named. Everything is anonymous. The narrator, the setting, characters, cities, books, friends, etc. The unnamed narrator is a deeply reflective woman in her mid-40s who is utterly alone. Melancholy and a sense of ennui characterize her reflections on the everyday experiences of an ordinary life. Her office, a doctor's waiting room, dinner with her few friends, visits to her mother, weekly swimming workouts. She eats alone. Her heart is not in her work as a professor. She describes herself as an expert in solitude. Quote, solitude has become my trade. As it requires a certain discipline, it's a condition I try to perfect. End quote. Her tiny apartment is Spartan. She's old enough to experience vague and worrisome ailments. She has a romantic but chaste relationship with a friend's husband and wonders about a hypothetical affair with him, but she acknowledges that it would be reckless and pointless. Late in the novel, she observes, quote, disoriented, lost, at sea, at odds, astray, adrift, bewildered, confused, uprooted, turned around. I'm related to these related terms. These words are my abode, my only foothold, end quote. That's not quite true. There's one breakthrough moment in her mundane life when she eats a simple sandwich. Quote, it hardly costs anything. I look for a place to sit and find a spot in the playground where they deal drugs at night. But at this time of day, it's bursting with kids, parents, dogs, also a few people on their own like me. But today, I don't feel even slightly alone. I hear the babble of people as they chatter on and on. I'm amazed at our impulse to express ourselves, explain ourselves, tell stories to one another. The simple sandwich I always get amazes me too, as I eat it as my body bakes in the sun that pours down on my neighborhood, each bite feeling sacred, 
reminds me that I am not forsaken. End quote. In the last few pages, she leaves the city where she has lived her entire life for a year abroad. Her journey to find her place in the world through interiority and solitude continues. For films this week, Dan reviews MLK slash FBI. It's long been common knowledge that J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI harassed Martin Luther King Jr., discredited him as one of the most dangerous men in America, and even targeted him as an enemy of the state. Director Sam Pollard's documentary film is based upon newly declassified government sources that show just how malicious that campaign was, and a note at the end of the film says that there are even more archives to be declassified in the year 2027. The campaign to discredit King began with his close association with the communist sympathizer Stanley Levison, expanded to secret surveillance of his sex life, and then spread further to discredit his support for LBJ's war on poverty. As you would expect, Pollard makes extended use of the massive photographic archives of King, black and white, set to the voiceover of historians like Beverly Gage of Yale, an expert on Hoover, Clarence Jones, King's attorney and speechwriter, and close associates like Andrew Young. The film does not excuse King's failures as a person, but it distinguishes them from his contributions as, as a civil rights activist. Similarly, it does not demonize Hoover, even though you feel like he deserves it. Rather, it suggests that the attacks on King were bigger than Hoover in the sense that the FBI was part of our government apparatus and overall cultural moment. This film reminds you of how badly the United States has betrayed its most fundamental ideals, and that there are very good reasons why so many people do not trust our government. I watched this film on Hulu. And lastly, for poetry for this third Sunday of Advent, on the Mystery of the Incarnation by Denise Levertov. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart. Not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature, vainly sure it and no other is godlike. God out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, and trusts as guest, as brother, the word. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 12th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.